I'm James Harding. I'm the editor of Tortoise and the host of The News Meeting. It's the podcast where we try and make sense of what should be leading the news with three people who each come and pitch the story that they think matters the most. On the latest episode, we're joined by the journalist, historian and author Satnam Sanghera. Like almost everyone, we go down the rabbit hole of that Princess of Wales photo editing story, and then Satnam explains why he thinks the Church of England paying reparations for its links to slavery should really be leading the news. Just search for Tortoise News wherever you get your podcasts and follow the feed so you don't miss an episode. Tortoise. Hello, welcome to Trendy from Tortoise. I'm John Curtis. And I'm Rachel Wolfe. This week, we're going to talk about populism, and particularly populism in Europe, from Geert Wilders in the Netherlands to Giorgio Maloney in Italy and the AFD in Germany. Radical right-wing politicians are making progress and winning votes. So an obvious question to ask is, why are they becoming more popular? And do they, as some people argue at least, represent a threat to democracy? And what happens when populists get power? Do they keep their promises? And is it always the right-wing populists that win? And perhaps we'll also take a quick look at why maybe populism is or isn't quite so popular in the UK. To help us navigate this, we're delighted to welcome Sarah Hobolt onto the podcast. Sarah is a professor of politics at the London School of Economics, and she's an expert in all things to do with populism in Europe. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. First of all, we thought, while we don't want to spend ages on passing definitions, it would be useful to understand what populism is, how it differs on on right and left, and, and why people think it's a threat to democracy. So um, if we start out with what populism is, academics tend to define it as a worldview that sees society as divided into two homogenous groups. So on the one hand, we have the corrupt elites, and on the other hand, we have the pure people. And populists believe that politics should be an expression of the general will of this people. And so, so that's really at the core of populism, this rallying against this corrupt elite and putting in power the, the people and the will of the people. So, Sarah, what you've, what you've just said has struck a chord with me, which is, is this the kind of rhetoric that, for example, Donald Trump uses? He seems to say that there is a conspiracy out there, particularly amongst the liberal, corrupt, perhaps, elite, trying to stop him from standing in the 2024 US presidential election. And he then goes on to say, and the point is, if they get me, they'll then get you, the people of America. Is this the kind of thing we're talking about? Exactly. I mean, Trump's rhetoric is really an example of populism, or we could think of a sort of radical right-wing populism. Uh, On the populist side, he has this sort of, he wants to drain the swamp. Uh, even though he's been president, of course, he's saying, you know, he's not the elite. He really stands for the people, the essence of the American people, and he will be the voice of that people in power. So that's very much kind of populist rhetoric. And he combines that with a, with a nativism and an authoritarianism. What do you mean by nativism? Um, nativism uh, is, a, is a sort of xenophobic kind of nationalism. So it's nationalism as it's called, but it's not only about who we are, it's also about 
the others and being against those who are not part of the nation. So we have populism of the left and populism of the right. What is different is really who are these elites that we are against. How is it possible for an ideology both potentially to be on the left and on the right? I think for many people this will sound a little bit peculiar and a little bit unusual. So uh, that's a great question and I think what we tend to call populism is therefore kind of thin-centered ideology. What do we mean by that? We mean by that that it can be attached to other ideologies. So when we have populism, what it has in common is this idea that you have these two groups, antagonistic groups in society, and that you as a populist leader represent the people and the general will of the people. Uh, on the left, these elites tend to be the capitalists, the bankers, you know, the financial systems, the big multinational companies, the ones who brought the financial crisis. So that's where we see a populist emerging out of the financial crisis, for example, in Italy, in Spain and so on, with Podemos, with Syriza, uh, with Mélenchon in France. They are populist, but they are, but the, the real enemy is are the capitalists. On the right, on the other hand, the enemy tend to be twofold. Big institutions, like in Trump's words, the sort of the swamp, the elites, the established institutions that try and constrain leaders from from carrying out the will of the people. And the other kind of enemies are those who don't belong to the nation. So immigrants, outsiders, foreigners or foreign institutions like foreign courts or the European Union. So, I mean, you mentioned the swamp, Sarah. I feel like I've been hearing American politicians promise to drain the swamp for quite a long time. So how new is this phenomenon? Is this uh, something that has emerged on both sides since the financial crisis? Or has it been a relatively ever-present factor in our politics? I don't think populist rhetoric as such is new, but the, the, the way in which we talk about populism is relatively recent. It's only really been the sort of last couple of decades, certainly in in, in, uh, in academia, that we've started calling it populism. Before we focus more, as, as John also said, about the other characteristics of these parties, namely, were they on the left, were they right, what were they rallying against? But looking at this commonality between these types of parties and and labeling that populism, I think that's relatively recent. But are they all? Are, are all these parties either on the extreme left? or the extreme right. So that, that, that apparently they can be on one or other of these two sides, which is kind of slightly different. Um, so it sounds as though it's, a, it's, like, it's almost like a style of politics, which they may, they may then get associated with various kinds of grievances. But does this therefore mean that all populist parties are either out there on the right or out there on the left? Yeah, they tend to be challenges sort of on the extreme, so that we also have parties like the Five Star Movement, in Italy that were kind of, in essence, a populist party, but was very hard to place on the political left-right spectrum. So they first, if you recall, in Italy, joined up in a coalition with the far right, and now they're seen as more on the left because they have a kind of mix of policies. And I think the reason why these populists are often hard to place is that on left-right economic politics, they're not as easy to define because, especially on the right, it's really about identity politics. So it's not about, you know, for example, having very libertarian right-wing politics. It's much more about identity politics, about reducing immigration, thinking differently about integration of immigrants, and also often opposing international institutions uh, running things in your own country. So the potential confusion here is in a sense that the parties of the populist right, quote unquote, 
tend to be parties that emphasize what we might call the liberal authoritarian dimension or the traditional progressive dimension. Yeah, so that, that set of arguments about identities and, uh, and values. Whereas parties that are so-called populist left are really parties that are emphasizing the left-wing end of the left-right spectrum, the role of the state, inequality in society, etc. Yes, although if you're a populist party on the left, you're not just traditionally left in terms of wanting redistribution and wanting the state to be more involved. You also have this additional element that you're sort of somehow saying, thinking that you can change the way politics is done. You're rallying against the, the elites and the established ways of doing things. You're worrying about elites rather than necessarily about capitalism, perhaps is one way of putting it. But of course, what we see in Europe is that it's the populism of the right that has been more successful, more dominant. And I think it's what most people are really talking about today when they talk about populism in Europe. The focus is really on radical right-wing populism. Let's just give our listeners some idea of the progress that these populist right-wing parties have made. Now, I've just simply taken six of the larger uh, Western European countries, Germany, Italy, Spain, France, Netherlands and Sweden. And if you go back to the election that was first held in around 2000 or closest there too, on average in these countries, these populist right-wing parties got about 9% of the vote. Uh, parties like the National Alliance uh, in, in Italy, for example, Front National in, in France. Now, if you take the most recent election of those six countries, we're looking at just over 20% support. So in a sense, taking that very crude calculation, they're about as twice as popular now as they were 20 years ago. So I think that gives our listeners some idea of the kind of progress we've been making. Oh, and by the way, one of them at least is currently in government um, in Italy, where the Prime Minister comes from the Brothers of Italy, which is a populist right-wing party. We're thinking that perhaps in the Netherlands they will form part of the coalition, though in true Dutch fashion they've not yet managed to form the coalition, but that's fairly common for the Netherlands. Um, and in Sweden they are supporting the current government. But how do we explain this rise? Well, I, there's sort of three broad explanations for why we're seeing this populist wave in Europe. The first is really focusing on economics. And we already talked about the the financial crisis, the Eurozone crisis that brought about austerity and a decline in living standards. And in some ways, populism is seen as a backlash against globalization, especially for those people who are not necessarily felt as winners of globalization. Some Scholars talk about it as sort of left the left behind. Others, a kind of social status anxiety associated with people that used to have a certain position within society and that fear that they no longer have that. And so that's really an economic explanation that focuses both on globalization, but also on the way in which the mainstream pol politicians have responded to that. And globalization, we mean that... Uh, you know, as countries are now trading more with each other, etc., etc., etc. That the world, as it were, got smaller economically and socially uh, because of uh, increasing inter interchange of trade. Well, I think probably to be slightly more specific about it, it's two versions of globalization. It's movement of people, which I assume we'll come on to, and it's also I think that a lot of uh, people who vote for populist parties tend to come from areas which used to be industrially very strong and have somewhat declined as manufacturing has risen in the rest of the world. Yes, exactly. So so what that has done, of course, with a lot of outsourcing of manufacturing, 
that that has meant a kind of, especially amongst the white working class, a sort of sense of a shrinking of the traditional jobs and the status associated with traditional jobs in manufacturing. And one key explanation is therefore that people like that, they they look to populist leaders and populist politicians who say, you know, we're going to offer you something different than what the mainstream had offered you. You know, they put out globalization as this um, as this route to growth and success, and for many people it hasn't been. But but as Rachel was saying, there's also another aspect to globalization, which is uh, multiculturalism and cultural globalization that have come from immigration, uh, that have come from integration in Europe. And so the second explanation is it's really not so much about econ- the economics of globalization, but it's more about the way in which our societies have changed culturally. Now, many people have embraced that, they think that makes our societies richer, it, 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 not just economically, but culturally. But for some, those changes to society are seen as some as a source of, of nervousness, of anxiety, and a kind of nostalgia for a different world, that the, a world that was. And so um, if we look at the programs of especially um, radical right-wing populist parties, really a focus on, on immigration, uh, reducing immigration, but also integrating immigrants in a way that they behave more like the societies they have arrived to and not bringing along sort of cultures, especially cultures that are seen as quite alien. Um, so so that's the second explanation, which is about a cultural anxiety, and, and that really is aligned with the main focus of the programs of, of the radical right populist, which is not really focused on economics and different economic solutions, but is really focused on identity politics. But then isn't it, doesn't this potentially work at two different levels? So you've kind of talked about the people who suffer from globalization individually. And we can also talk about the people who are most concerned culturally about immigration. That, as it were, begins to talk about the kinds of people who might vote for populist parties, which I think we might come on to a bit more. But isn't there then also potentially another level of explanation, which is to do with the circumstances of economics and the circumstances of immigration? In other words, is it the case that populism perhaps, even if isn't necessarily always supported by those who are particularly economically challenged themselves, may become more popular in circumstances where society as a whole is more economically challenged, e.g. in the wake of something like the financial crash of 2008 to 2009. And equally also, is it just the individual concern about immigration, but also the levels of immigration and the changes in those levels of immigration that may be occurring at any particular point in time? Yes, I, I think that's right. But there's certainly not a kind of simple relationship between let's say, an economic downturn and the right of populism. And we can also see that when we look at the spread of populism across Europe, that, in fact, populism has always been very strong in, uh, well, radical right-wing populism has been very strong in Scandinavia for a long time. You know, Denmark and Norway were two of the countries where it was already on the rise in the 70s and 80s. And those are countries that are both very wealthy, but also have very high levels of redistribution. So it was just a question of having more people who felt economically worse off, then it doesn't really explain why it's often in North and Northwestern Europe in the more, in the wealthier country and the countries with higher levels of redistribution where we've seen the rise of those parties. And really, if you look at the programs of the populists in, in Scandinavia, it's much more focused on that cultural aspect, that aspect of why are our society is changing so quickly uh, 
people feeling uncomfortable with that, wanting to limit immigration, wanting to uh, limit, in particular, being concerned about immigration from Muslim countries, uh, which is a big focus of the radical right in Europe. Things that feel where people feel that they're less empowered, where societies are integrating and changing in ways that change the nature and the face of, of traditional uh, of, of of what they had before. So there's a sort of strong nostalgia to the past where things were simpler and more homogenous. Can I ask a, a couple of follow-up questions on that? Because you haven't done this at all, Sarah, but occasionally when I hear people talk about populism, the sort of tone is these idiots who are voting idiotically for these idiot parties. So if I were to give a sort of slight defence of the populist voter, is there an argument that there was, if not a conspiracy a lie from the elites. So if I think about the UK, for example, David Cameron promised to reduce immigration to net tens of thousands in his manifesto. Every election manifesto that has won of the last 15 years has promised to reduce immigration. And yet that promise not only hasn't been fulfilled, but immigration has risen dramatically. Rather than responding to rhetoric, is there an argument that some of these votes are responding to some substance? I think these are these are great point, and it's sort of it leads in, in a sense to the third explanation, perhaps, for populism, which is is politics itself and the failure of mainstream parties, uh, in some ways, to offer the kind of choice uh, that voters had. We saw in in the eighties and the nineties in many countries, Britain might be an exception, a, a a convergence of the mainstream. So there was not really any real difference between the centre-left, the centre-right. So if you are unhappy with politics, if you feel it doesn't deliver for you on things that you are genuinely concerned about, it's not surprising that many people then turn to, many voters turn to, to challenger parties, to populist challenger parties that offered something something different. Um, and as you say, immigration has been um, a big concern and a, and, a, and a genuine concern for many voters. And I think it was felt that perhaps mainstream parties didn't do two things. They didn't address it, but also they they didn't make the case for it either. So they weren't sort of saying, no, we're, we're having these high levels of immigration because, you know, perhaps it's a good thing for the economy. In fact, they were just sort of preferred to just let immigration rise without talking much about it. So so I think these are these are important. These are important points. But it's, a, it's also they're also part of the story that's linked to what we've just been talking about. Um, because you'd mentioned, you know, the European Union and a lot of these populist right parties tend to be Eurosceptic. Is this also a story about people being concerned about the decline seemingly of the of the nation state or at least the, the effectiveness of nation states, uh, the constraints on nation states as a result, not just of economic globalisation, which we've already talked about, but also about this programme of... Uh, political integration that much of the European Union has been involved in, uh, something that perhaps elites have framed, but have not necessarily taken the demos, the people with them. So is this also part of the story? Is it not just a question of economics and a question of sociology, i.e. immigration, but also a question of politics and, as it were, almost the legitimacy of the decision-making process in the eyes of some people uh, in the face of the circumstances they find themselves. Yes, exactly. I mean, I think this sense of feeling empowered or perhaps disempowered in, in some cases is important. And and we haven't yet talked about the uh, about Brexit in, in the UK, but I think one of the things that made the Leave campaign quite successful with this was the slogan around take back control, which is really about empowering people. They can, you know, taking back control of your laws, your borders, and so on, that people feel they have a say. 
And because if we go back to the definition of populism, that it's about this idea that politics should be an expression of the general will of people and populist politicians say, we are going to be your voice. And that voice is not going to be constrained by international institutions, by the European Union, by unelected judges. It's not going to be constrained. It's going to be your preference. It's your voice, pure and simple. That's very appealing, especially in times where people perhaps feel that power has moved very far away from them and they don't have a lot of a say over the things that matter to them. Well, one thing we've not picked up from our earlier conversation, and perhaps we should before we move on to uh, talking about who's going to vote for them, let alone the position in the UK. Why is all of this sometimes thought to be a threat to democracy? Because, you know, these guys are saying we want the people to, to govern. We want the people to rule. So what's undemocratic about that? So, of course, the modern day radical right wing populists are very different from the fascists and, and the sort of national socialists of the past in the sense they're not anti-democrats. In fact, they might say they're the real democrats. They support more democracy. They're often strong supporters of more direct democracy. <clears throat> However, where, where concern comes in is that they are often quite opposed to liberal democratic institutions. So, so what do I mean by that? So liberal dem democratic institutions are things like checks and balances of government so government can't just do whatever they want you mean checks like not being able to prorogue parliament without in, 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 unless it's very clear that it's legal to do Actually, so that would be seen as a sort of classic well the will of the people is in this case brexit so if parliament is putting a constraint on the will of the people and i as a leader have a mandate to carry that out then I will go against the institutions that, that constrain me in that sense. So, But of course, in a liberal democracy, we say, no, the executive is not unconstrained. It is not only about the will of the people at any particular point in time, because history has shown us the dangers of that. So we have checks and balances. We have rule and law, rule of law. We have courts and we have human rights, for example, that sometimes means that any executive, any leader will uh, have limits to their power. Is there an argument that as well as this being partly a consequence of a failure of mainstream politics to offer alternatives, that there has been a semi-failure of mainstream institutions? So to give an example again in, in Britain, and I'd be interested to know how much this happened in Europe, you know, consistently over the last 15 years, we've had stories of the failure of the government to deport terrorists or deal with them or questions around how the ECHR interacts with criminals that the vast majority of the British public think is a case that is ludicrous. And that this kind of mounts up over time because there seems to be a separation between what you think is the virtue the virtue of these international organizations or the law which is to kind of uphold basic principles and the application of that law is that a, a valid argument at all no i mean of course it's a valid argument and you in in the sense that you can see why some of these cases and instances give would give rise to sort of concerns i guess there is you know, people who are in favor would say that, that there's a more general principle at play, which is that sometimes we have these safeguards in place uh, for even though they in, in individual cases might seem, oh, it'd be nice if we could just decide what we're doing. These safeguards are, are in place exactly because we want to make sure that leaders don't come into power and do whatever they want, that democracy should not be. And we've seen historically, of course, 
what can happen if democracy has no safeguards. Democracy should not be unlimited by any kind of more general principles um, of, for example, human rights, of the rule of law. We shouldn't be able to have an, a leader elected who can just say, oh, we're not going to listen to parliament because I stand for the will of the people. We're not going to listen to the court because it's the will of the people. You can see that it's a slippery slope. Um, of course, you can these concerns can be politicized quite easily. And I don't think if you look at opinion polls that there's ne necessarily a lot of support for a lot of these liberal democratic institutions. It's really the kind of principles that have to be and have been upheld by mainstream political parties rather than by sort of a popular desire for certain particular uh, institutional setups. In a moment, we'll discuss who votes for populist parties. We'll be back in a minute. What comes to mind when you think of Amber Heard? A liar? A survivor? A narcissist? The trial of Depp v. Heard was a global phenomenon, but I want to know, was it a fair fight? I'm Alexi Mostris, the host of Sweet Bobby and Hoaxed. In my new podcast, I'm investigating whether Amber Heard was the victim of an organised trolling campaign. Just search for Who Trolled Amber wherever you get your podcasts. So we've talked a lot about the similarities in populism, we've talked a bit about America, but mostly in Europe. How about the differences in what's happening? So are the same sorts of people voting for right-wing and left-wing populists across Europe? And, and are they all effectively interchangeable in terms of what they are promising to the people in return? Think about the voters. Uh, there's not a kind of one type of voter you can say, this is, the, this is a populist voter. In fact, that's also why the kind of very simple economic explanation doesn't necessarily work that well when we think of that. It's not just the, the working class voter who has been, you know, who's worse off, who is voting for with the radical right. We really see that across the socioeconomic spectrum, uh, people voting for the radical right. If we're going to identify certain factors that perhaps make uh, radical right wing voters that, that sort of mark them out, it's really much more about education and, and class or income. People who have university degrees are generally much less likely to vote for the radical right than people without university degrees. So that's one common characteristic uh, across Europe. Is that also true for, for populist parties of the left, that they're less likely to vote for populist parties of the left than, populist, than, than the rest of the population? Populist parties of the left, that you know, so they are fewer, more few and far between. Uh, we've seen them a lot in Southern Europe, in Spain, in, 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 in Greece, uh, um, to some extent Italy and France, and really in response to the, to the financial crisis and the austerity. And so often it's been younger and somehow univers often also university educated younger people, but not necessarily younger people with who are in stable long-term employment. Um, so it's really the more, much more on the right, also because the kind of identity politics that we've talked about with anti-immigration, anti-establishment um, attitudes is found more among people without university degrees, whereas uh, people with university degrees, for whatever reason, either because they select into it or because those of us in universities are sort of brainwashing them or influencing them to think a certain way, tend to be more, uh, much more liberal or much more socially progressive in that dimension. So when we think of that second dimension in politics that you talked about, John, 
really here education is the key divider rather than class or income. What about age? Is it young people who don't vote for populist parties and older people who do? So, so in Britain, of course, there's a massive age divide at the moment in politics. Uh, and there was not only when it comes to voting for conservative and labor, whereas, whereas conservative is much more the party for older voters, but we also saw it in, in, in the Brexit referendum where age was a key factor, younger people being much more likely to vote remain, older people being much more likely to vote leave. Now, you might think, oh, that translates into voting for radical right-wing populism in Europe in a similar way. And we really don't see that kind of neat pattern. You have quite a few young people voting for the radical right, say, in France, in Germany, and so on. And again, perhaps being uh, attracted to part of that change message, that anti-establishment message that young people often find attractive. You know, we're going to offer you something different, a change. Uh, we're going to offer you some hope of a society where your voice counts. So, so, so AIDS is not a clear dividing line in, in, in Europe when it comes to populism in the way that AIDS has become so crucial in, in British politics. Is, is gender a big factor? Do men vote populist more than women? So gender is when it comes to the radical right. Um, so men are much more likely uh, to vote for... It's a, it's a, Gender normally isn't a, such a big factor in voting behavior in Europe. But when it comes to the radical right, men, young men, are much more likely to vote for the radical right than women. And that's still, even though the radical right have sort of tried to soften their image uh, in certain ways, there's still that kind of gender divide uh, that men are just find are more likely to vote for these parties. But that's mainly on the right and not on the left. Um, so uh, that's all fascinating. So maybe then we should come to the question of the UK. Um, is it happening here? What's the evidence of it? We talked a little bit about the Brexit campaign. We obviously perhaps should come back to that as being perhaps an example of populism. But if we go back to that comparison that I gave right at the beginning, which was that you know support for populist parties in the most recent election is twice what it is in uh, 20 years ago, in the UK, well, back in the election of 2001, UKIP got one and a half percent of the vote. And in the 2019 election, Brexit party got two percent of the vote. So is this a phenomenon that's left the UK behind or was it at least only evident in the um, EU referendum campaign? And if so, why? Why is the UK seemingly a, perhaps a bit of an outlier in that populism doesn't seem, at least in the long run, to be as disruptive of our politics as it has been in many West European society? I think many people looking at the UK uh, from the outside would certainly not see the UK as somehow being immune to this populist wave. I think some people might see Brexit being the big populist moment uh, for Britain, because if, if you look at what made that campaign so successful and the core messages of the campaign, which we talked about, I mean, they're very populist in essence. It was about taking back control. It was about the somehow being a sort of shadowy elite, in this case in Brussels, controlling our lives, and we were going to take back control. And also it had a lot of commonalities with aspects of radical right-wing populism in terms of anti-immigration, controlling our borders, 
and a sort of nostalgia, we're going to take Britain back to the way it was when it was great. So, so, so even though you don't successfully populist parties as such, and you know, of course, John, exactly why that is, that's because, not because of the demand in the population, but because of the electoral system. Is it the electoral system or is it that in contrast to many a mainstream party in Western Europe... The UK parties have managed to ride the populist wave and integrate it into mainstream politics because we're still talking about, despite the apparently very disruptive nature of the whole Brexit episode, in the end, when we got to the 2019 general election, well, yet the party that rode that wave most successfully, the Conservative Party, a mainstream party in our politics, wins the election and they're still being opposed by the principal, uh, their principal opponents, Labour. And we still therefore have a party system structure that looks exactly the same, more or less, as it did 20 years ago. Again, in stark contrast, I would suggest you to elsewhere. So what is it that Boris Johnson did right, question mark, that most mainstream parties in Western Europe did not manage to do right. And just to add to that briefly, I mean, most people would say that the battle this year in the election is between two equally boring centrist technocratic <laughs> politicians who have nothing interesting to say to voters in either direction. I, I would I would slightly challenge Boris as a populist, but we probably don't have time to go into it in detail. But But is there one argument that once populism wins, populism dies in the sense that Immigration hasn't gone down since the Brexit referendum and since the same governments have been in power. They have not moved away from centrist politics. My understanding is the same as happening in Italy, uh, that actually there haven't been any really radical policies implemented since maybe it's too early to say with the Netherlands, but that actually once these uh, parties take power, they don't do very much with it. Yet, Rachel, just bear in mind that according to a recent projection as to what's going to happen in the European Parliament elections, which take place throughout the European Union this summer, we're expecting about 25% of the seats to be won by parties of the radical right. So um, whatever their individual ups and downs, seemingly there is still quite a strong tide. So, I mean, going back first to Britain, I mean, you're right, the mainstream parties here have been very successful at and holding on to that sort of two-party model and to also, as you were saying, incorporate some of the elements that um, I think it, when I think of Boris Johnson, it's not that the sort of Conservative Party platform at the time was, I would say, make it a populist party, but just elements of the rhetoric that was popular with voters. Um, and so, and that you see that, of course, in first-past-the-post electoral system, like the British, like the American, that it's very hard for outside challengers to come in and, cap and and really become successful. But what sometimes happens is that populists can capture or can capture the mainstream parties. And that has not happened, I think, to that extent in the UK, but it certainly happened in the US with the Republican Party, where, of course, now the main contender and perhaps the only contender for the, for the presidential candidacy of the Republicans is Donald Trump, and who is, I think, in essence, impressively still rallying against the elite, even though he was a, he's a former president. Um, so, so in that sense, that's more likely what we see in, in those kind of electoral systems. I mean, I think here it probably depends a little bit on the type of country you're talking about. I think I would imagine Donald Trump can probably do quite radical things in power in the US being, you know, a superpower. It's much harder for European states. And this is what I think Maloney has been up against, because there you're talking in, in Italy, a, a, a country very constrained within the European Union 
in terms of what it can do, you know, for better or for worse. Uh, for example, on the economy, there are limits, but also on on just towing the line in terms of as long as you are in the EU, as long as you are in the Euro, there's limits to what you can do. So one of the things that have fallen by the wayside with several populist governments in Italy is this call for in their campaigns, oh, we're going to rally against Europe. We're going to leave the Euro and these things. And once they're in government, that's out the window because they know they would have, you know, quite devastating, well, they think they would have quite devastating consequences for their economies. So on the more foreign policy, that angle, certainly they've been constrained. In terms of some of the things they could do domestically on immigration, on treatment of immigrants uh, in Italy, also on, on aspects of gender and LGBTQ policies, there have been some more radical reforms. But certainly populists in power are constrained by this sort of exactly that global context they find themselves in. So exactly the things that populists talk, you know, rally against the fact that they that governments are constrained and can't just enact the will of the people is what they also find once they're in power. Uh, the paradox of populism, I think, perhaps is what you've uh, pointed out, Sarah. Um, Sarah, thank you very much. That was wonderful. Thank you very, very much indeed for your contribution. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Uh, that was fascinating. That is it from Trendy for this week. I'm sure we will return to populism as more elections in Europe unfold over the next year. I'm Rachel Wolf, And I'm John Curtis. We'll be back next week. What comes to mind when you think of Amber Heard? A liar? A survivor? A narcissist? The trial of Depp v Heard was a global phenomenon, but I want to know, was it a fair fight? I'm Alexi Mostris, the host of Sweet Bobby and Hoaxed. In my new podcast, I'm investigating whether Amber Heard was the victim of an organised trolling campaign. Just search for Who Trolled Amber wherever you get your podcasts.